0: All right, if you'll turn with me to the book of Colossians, book of Colossians, we will be in chapter 3 this morning, reading from verse 5 to verse 11. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Hear God's word for you this morning. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you Here is there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for this word. It's a, as we say that, it's a recognition that this word is a gift. It's the ordinary means of your grace for us. So, Lord, pray that as I speak this morning, that you would empower and strengthen me. Lord, may your Spirit speak through me, that the words that are proclaimed would be words of truth and grace, um, words that draw us closer to you. Lord, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. Soften us to receive this Word this morning. We pray for Your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it was back at the end of May. I preached on the first four verses of this chapter, kind of um, a placeholder in between series that I'm doing. I'll be starting Uh, somewhere in the Psalms next week, uh, and so we'll be looking at the Psalms next week. But I preached on Colossians 3, 1 to 4, which is just a great passage that calls us as believers to seek the things that are above, to seek Christ, because as believers, as it talks about, we have died with Him. We've been crucified with Him, and our lives are actually described as hidden with Christ in God, And we're not just to do that for the sake of doing it. It's not just, well, this is the next thing to do, but we do it because it's actually what is best for us. It's for our good. So our affections are to lie with Christ in heaven because that is where our happiness truly rests. Now, this is imperative for us to know. This is a good thing for us to know. But to see life change and and transform more and more to the image of Christ it takes more than just setting our minds on things above, just seeking the gospel and, and meditating on that. There, there isn't an automatic flow in life of, of right living just because our hearts and minds are set on Christ, though I will say it's not less than that. That is certainly necessary because we still have remaining sin in our lives, and there is actual work to be done. In order to experience the fullness of life with Christ, we must, as Paul says, actively put sin to death. We have to learn to die. Now, that's exactly what Paul tackles in the verses before us today. It's the reality of life that we must actively be putting sin to death. This is not so that we may be justified, so that we may be saved, to, to be right before God. That's grounded in our repentance and faith, that's grounded in the fact that we are already in Christ. We have already died with Him. That's foundational. But this dying to our sin is so that we may be conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ by dying to that sin in the present moment-by-moment aspect of life. So, this morning, we're going to move further into Colossians 3 and explore some of what Paul calls us towards And as I've said, it's that life of putting sin to death. This is the life of renewal, and it's truly the life of a believer. We are to die to sin daily, moment by moment, because definitively, we have already died with Christ. And so now we're called to a practice, and the practice of dying has to flow out of the principle that we have already died with Christ. So the imperative of do this has to flow out of the indicative of this is what is already true. Okay, we have to make sure we keep those in proper order. Now, because it has been a few weeks, let's review the principle a little bit. The the truth that believers have died with Christ. We have to make sure that we understand this foundational principle. This, uh, in order to teach and or to expect results in our daily practice. John Gill wrote, he said, "...where there is not the doctrine of faith, the obedience of faith cannot be expected. Where there is not the doctrine of the gospel and men have not learned Christ, they live for the most part as if there was no God in the world and give themselves up to, all, to work all sin with greediness." So we have to have the gospel. We have to know and understand it. doctrine must precede, not proceed, precede practice. We have to understand that we are by nature sinners. We're children of wrath who have rebelled against the holy God. In ourselves, we have no hope of salvation, no hope of eternal life. It's only in Christ that we find that actual hope. It's in His work of living and dying for us that brings salvation to those who repent and believe. It is through Christ that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, as it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. And it's because of His work on the cross that there is hope for real and lasting peace. Paul also writes in chapter 1, starting in verse 21, he says this, he says, And you who once were alienated, so separated, apart from God, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So you see that you were alienated. He's reconciled you. He's brought you in. You're justified by grace through faith. But there's more to the process. He's called to work holiness. He's going to work holiness in us. Okay? We are to be transformed into his image for his glory and for our good. And Gill, who I quoted just a moment ago, made it clear that we must understand doctrine before we can truly practice the Christian life. But he also made sure to state this. Doctrine without practice or a mere theory, and speculative knowledge of things, unless reduced to practice, is of no avail. Doctrine and practice should go together. The one being first taught will lead on to the other. And I would say not just that it should, but that it must lead to practice. We cannot be content with merely right doctrine in life. Right practice has to follow and flow out of it, not, not perfection, but that we are moving in the direction of more and more conformity to Christ. Jonathan Edwards talked about in one of his resolutions that daily he would see growth in grace. Now, some of us look at that and go, wow, that dude's intense, <laughs> but hopefully we would want to see the same thing, that daily we would see growth and grace in our lives. Now, this whole thing that Paul has taught, he's taught and meticulously instructed in the gospel, in the, the, the doctrine. He labored to present Christ in all His glorious person and work. That's the beauty of Colossians. It lifts up the supremacy of Christ, and he does that because he knows that our default our default human system is self-righteousness. It's works righteousness in which we believe that, that we can boast, that we can do it ourselves. But I think he also goes through all of that in order to free us in this next step. The, because that process of growing to be more and more like Christ, to be conformed to the image, His image, we need to understand how it works. We're to see fruit in our lives in keeping with a life of repentance and faith, fruit that reflects the nature and character of God Himself. Orthodoxy in, in doctrine, so right doctrine, as I've said, must lead to what we would call orthopraxy right practice. Okay? So, these things are not to be separated. It's a process of growth, that's true, but they are not to be separated. This is something that, uh, that, that does not happen instantaneously in our lives or with little to no effort. Okay? This is, uh, you know, all the kids who think that they can They'd love to be able to learn math by osmosis, you know, just kind of lay it under their pillow at night and hope that they can pick up advanced calculus or something like that. Like, it doesn't happen this way. There actually has to be effort. The practice, the process flows out of the principle. It takes time to see. It takes faith-filled effort. And I will tell you this, it is often a very painful process, though it yields results that are well worth what is given up. Okay, it yields results that are well worth what we put to death. So again, as as Paul moves us into this call to holy living, he does so by reminding us of this truth. So I'm going to read 3, 1 to 4 again for us, just to remind us. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And so that principle there is that we have died. We've died with Christ, and our life is now with Him. And and those four verses, in some ways, are uh, and kind of moving into where we go in Colossians, are almost a Cliff's Notes version of Romans 6. And I'm just going to read a little bit of Romans 6, because I think it's worth hearing. So starting in verse 5, I wish I had time to go through the, the heart of that, but it just to, to tell you that this what we're talking about is throughout Scripture. It's the call to continue to die to sin. It's the reality that our old self was crucified. But that's not all there is. I've already alluded to it, but let's look at verse 5 of Colossians 3 put to death therefore what is earthly in you this is paul's response to if you if then you have died with christ you know seek the things that are above so put to death then what is earthly in you and it's really the first part of a two-part response part two comes in 12 through 17 of this chapter but here paul says something that i, I think if we take a moment to think about it, it might seem a little odd maybe a bit confusing. He says, put to death, because didn't he just say, you have died? Like, when something's dead, isn't it dead? Like, this isn't the princess bride, right? It's not mostly dead. Um, You've died to sin, but yet we're called to put it to death. And, it's, and what he says is absolutely accurate, and, and I think it's helpful for us to understand that, that the statement that we have died with Christ speaks to what is definitively or positionally true in our lives. We have died with Him. As believers, we are justified, we are declared righteous, we are secure in our relationship with Him. However, conditionally, progressively in our day-to-day, in the present experience, there remains sin in us. We continue to experience the reality of sin in our lives. We have not yet put sin completely to death. So Paul, what he is telling us is that we need to actively work to put to death the remaining sin. We need to die to those things that we hold dear or, or currently hold on to that are contrary to His character, that is earthly and fleshly in us. Now, as I alluded to earlier, this is not going to be a pain-free experience, okay? Not at all. The metaphor, the, the, the language that he uses to describe is accurate, put to death, and, and that, that is descriptive of the difficulty we have in this aspect of the Christian life. As we fight to put the stubborn remnants of the flesh to death, we are going to encounter pain, and I believe that that is really important for us to understand. Growth in grace, growth in holiness, it can be quite a painful process. It's not pain-free. It reminded me of this quote from C.S. Lewis. He wrote, as you perhaps know, I haven't always been a Christian. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Folks, Christianity won't always make you feel comfortable. <laughs> Life with Christ will not always make you feel comfortable, but there is most certainly, I will say, happiness and a lasting joy in being more and more conformed to Christ. And there's certainly happiness in knowing that you are secure in your relationship and you are bound for the promised land. But that joy often comes as well through the painful process of putting sin to death. See, our goal is holiness. It's a Christ-likeness. It's not comfort. And I think this helps orient our expectations in the Christian life, whether you're a few years old in the Christian life or you're 40, 50, 60 years old in the Christian life. We still need our our expectations oriented. We, We need to recalibrate the compass or whatever so that we know we are walking in the line that He calls us to. And I do think people find it helpful to to know what to expect. My kids, if we do something new, will often, the phrase that comes out, what's it going to be like? What's what's it going to look like, dad? We we want to know what's coming. It helps us with our expectations. We don't want to be caught by surprise. And so understanding that there is pain in Christian growth is important, and I think it's Really important in our day to age. Paul Miller, great author, he wrote this. He said, Given the modern obsession with living in a pain free world, it is helpful to know that victory over my flesh will result in pain and even sadness. We do live in a world that is obsessed with being pain free. The the narcotics business to eliminate pain and stay off pain is massive. And in, in so many things, let's just eliminate pain. Let's not do the hard things. Let's make sure everyone gets the participation trophy and no one knows that they're a loser or that they've lost, I should say. Not that they're a loser, but that they lost. Now, this whole idea may not be something that you've thought about in some ways. And what I'm about to say may actually be difficult for you to hear, but I think this process is painful because we enjoy sinning. We enjoy our sin. If we didn't enjoy it, we wouldn't do it. Okay? So, just for example, boasting, okay? It feels good to get that stroke of ego to boost our self-esteem. We long for the recognition to be viewed as better than others, as competent, as an expert, as that needed person. Hey, we need him here. And in, in all sin, there is some satisfaction in it, or we just wouldn't do it. So when you blow up in anger over something, there's some satisfaction in, whew, had to get that off my chest— Making sure that someone knew that what they did to you or what's bothering you, that that they did it because, you know what, you're awfully darn important, and they just ticked you off. Or when you yell at the driver who can't drive well, you're making it very clear in that whole matter that you're appalled, that they had the audacity to not recognize your absolutely great importance, that you have somewhere to be, and they're impeding your right to get there when you want to even though you ran late getting out of the house. When you defend yourself against an accusation, whether small or great, you're seeking to uphold your own righteousness to keep yourself from feeling like you've failed. When you gossip about someone, you do it to build yourself up and knock them down so that you feel more justified. When you lie to cover something up, You do it because you believe it's going to keep you from the pain of the truth. Folks, we sin because we enjoy it. We do it to avoid pain quite often. We do it to numb the pain that we might be feeling. And when we confront these things in our hearts, when we seek to put them to death, there is that pain, but there is also an aspect of sadness. Because in doing this, we come face to face with the fact that we are sinful, that we are rebellious, that we're fallen people who hurt one another and, and, and ourselves, who offend God with our turning away from Him, from what is best for us. We, there, there's sadness quite often, I think, because we come face to face with that thought of, "Wow, oh, I still do that. How could my heart be so black and nasty?" How could I hurt somebody like that with that kind of intention? And there's a sadness in knowing, gosh, I still need a whole lot of grace. I need a powerful Savior. Because we come face-to-face with our inability to do it on our own. We come face-to-face with the fact that we are not as strong or as good as we actually think we are. And there is, in coming face-to-face with those things, there's sadness. But I would contend that in this, in that recognition, the whole process, that's actually a really good thing. It's necessary, and it's integral to our repentance. Our Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, asks, what is repentance unto life? It is a great question, question 87. And the answer it gives is this, repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, its you and me, out of a true sense of his sin, so we come face to face, we feel that pain, we feel that sadness, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. We apprehend, we understand our sin, we we have that true sense of it, but we also catch that glimpse of the mercy of God in Christ, which is absolutely essential in repentance. When we come face to face with our sin, we need to see the Savior, or we're going to be in trouble. And then with grief and hatred, and the larger catechism says, uh, understanding the odiousness of our sin, that our sin stinks, we turn to God with full purpose of and we endeavor after new obedience. And that, that purpose and endeavoring after because and by the grace of God is focused. That's the way we're going to see real victory in this, in putting sin to death, this repentance is part of the process of, of what is often called mortification of sin. To mortify us, to kill, to put to death. We, we, we kill those sinful desires and actions, those things which pull us away from setting our minds and, and our hearts and on seeking the things above, seeking that proper place for our affections. Now, Paul in this text doesn't just tell us to do this. He actually gives some reasons for it, some reasons for why he's so forceful, why use the language of put this to death, kill it. Look at verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Because of sins, just like this, God's wrath is coming. Or Romans eight thirteen. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Folks, living comfortably in your life with sin is serious business. Killing it is necessary. Sin is active. And I will tell you this, sin takes no breaks. Sin doesn't take a holiday. You go, oh, we'll just leave him alone for a while. John Owen, in his treatise of the mortification of sin and believers, very thick but really rich volume, he wrote this. He says, if sin be subtle, watchful, strong, and always at work in the business of killing our souls, listen to that language, and we be slothful, negligent, foolish in proceeding to the ruin thereof, can we expect a comfortable event There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed on, and it will be so while we live in this world. Sin is going to be at work. We cannot be lazy at fighting it. There's not a day that we should not be putting sin to death. He profoundly wrote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And whatever sin you are dealing with, you are to kill it. Paul lists some sins here. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but he gives some examples of things that we should certainly not cling to, but yet too often do. And he starts with a focus in the area of sexual sin, immorality, impurity, passion, the perversion and wrong use of the gift God has given to us, any indulgence in this area outside of the marriage covenant between a husband, a man, and his wife, a woman, is sinful. But as Jesus made clear to us all, it's not just the action that we seek to put to death, but the desire. Matthew five twenty-seven to 30, "'You have heard that it was said, "'You shall not commit adultery, "'but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman "'with lustful intent has already committed adultery "'with her in his heart.'" If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Paul's not the only one who was serious about this. (laughs) Okay, all of Scripture is. And so Paul will continue with this list, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, and he gets to the heart here. Sin is idolatry. We worship something other than the living God, and we seek pleasure and satisfaction and worth there rather than in God. One commentator wrote this, every sin is basically selfishness and worship of self instead of the worship of God, the substitution of self for Christ in one's affections. where you look first to your own needs and not to his and not to anyone else's. And folks, I think there's, again, there's sadness in realizing how selfish we are. Realizing that that that's just too often who we are and there's going to be pain as we seek by grace to put that to death. We'll look down at verse 7 as well. Paul wrote, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Paul says these things were true of you. You did walk in them. You lived in them, but that's not who you are as a believer, and that's not how you are to live. Paul wrote in Galatians 5, 25, if we live by the Spirit, so if we've, have, we've been given life by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit day by day, walk by the Spirit. We're not to walk according to our sinful desires. We walk by the Spirit. We are new creations in Christ. We must put these things away, lay them aside. In essence, take them off and utterly kill them. Treat them as if you are dead to them because definitively you are. You must make your conditional experience match what is definitively true. We progressively move toward greater Christ likeness. And this is certainly not easy. There's anger, slander, obscene talk, malice, all those things, and we hear that everywhere. It's in the air we breathe. It's in, you watch TV, and that's all you hear. You watch the news. What is it? Anger, wrath, malice, and slander. But those things are not to be true of a child of God. And where Paul grounds this, again, he draws us back to what's true. Verse 9, he says, "...seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices." And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on that new self, that true self that is in Christ. As a believer, you are no longer designated as in Adam, but you are designated as in Christ. That is really, that is actually the the, the most prolific way a Christian is referred to in the New Testament is in Christ. We are in Christ. Christ is our all. That principle, that foundation is imperative for us to know in order to practice what we are called to. I have a a video series that I enjoy watching every now and then called Dispatches from the Front. Uh, If you want something that just stirs your heart towards missions to whether overseas or just to your neighbors. This is a great video series. And in one video, there's an old, worn out, hardened looking woman. And she lived in the village of Hatai in South Sudan. Her name was Aro Kulano, and she was a sorceress. That's who she was. That was her trade, that was her livelihood. That's how she was known in the village. But Christ called her out of darkness, and she turned from her life of demons and sin, and she laid it aside. She embraced who she definitively is in Christ. She worked to put her sin to death. The trouble, though, with this was that her son was a very devout Muslim and was not at all happy that his mama changed. And so, in a rage, he burnt her house down. And if I were in her shoes, I'm pretty sure I would have been tempted to pull out some of that sorcery again and fried the boy somehow. I'd do whatever you could do with the sorcery. But she didn't. She laid it aside, the anger, the wrath, the malice, obscene talk. I'm sure it was a fight for her. It doesn't say, but I'm sure just in, in the understanding of, of how the Christian life works, it was a fight. So she laid that aside, and so did all the Christians who lovingly rebuilt her home. And in that process, by the grace of God, those responses, those works of, of loving, of, of putting to death the sin that is in us, Those works of the Spirit of God in His people so softened her son's heart that he came to Christ. And it's just a beautiful picture of what happens as we continue to do this. I'm sure it was painful to have all that happen to her. I'm sure it was painful for the Christians to see this happen to her from her own son, and it was probably painful to deny and put to death the desires that surely flooded her to go back to her old ways, and she was probably sad to be confronted with those desires, with that understanding that, I want to get back at him. But by the grace of God, she didn't go back. She put those things to death, and she walked the life in Christ. So, folks, it's, it will take the grace of God in our lives to do this, And it's also going to take our effort, God-fueled, faith-filled effort, full purpose, and endeavoring after new obedience. But I will tell us, this is what is best for us. It's easy to let it slip aside and just not think about it, but we have to have that full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. This is where we learn the life of Christ. This is, in some ways, it's entering into the sufferings of Christ as as we deal with that evil inside of us. It's not going to be an experience that's pain-free in any way, but it is going to be an experience that will bring you more and more into reflecting your Savior, the one who loves you deeply, the one in whom you, as a believer, rest. And so it is a blessed joy to live a life dying to sin because in Christ you have already died, and so we are called to daily put it to death and to be conformed more and more to the likeness of our Savior, of Christ, whose life, it's His life in us that we live. And let Him work through us by grace as we pursue Greater and greater conformity to Him. Let's pray. Father, this idea of putting sin to death is not easy. The concept we can probably wrap our heads around a bit, but the actual practice of doing is difficult. And it takes diligence and endurance and patience. And it takes your grace to strengthen us. Lord, be at work in us. Thank you that you do not leave us or forsake us in this fight, but that you empower us by the filling of your Spirit. Work in us and conform us more and more to the image of the one in whom we are defined as those in Christ. And so we pray in his name. Amen.